Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We made it finally to chapter 2 of Judges. And I'll give you a few minutes to turn there, um, but I'm going to start reading from chapter 2. So Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So that is the text for tonight. Um, And I'm really excited to get into this text. I spent quite a bit of time running on lots of different rabbit trails, but I will spare you many of those details. (laughs) Or I will try to. Um, So... uh, there, if we wanted to kind of do like a, you know, an outline for this text as you, so we can have something to follow along with, uh, the outline is you have uh, the preacher, uh, you have the sermon, and then you have the response to that sermon. So in this text, we have this really interesting character, the angel of the Lord, who comes and delivers a sermon to the people of Israel. And then that character gets that sermon, and then the people respond to that sermon. And so we're going to try to look at all three of those elements in turn. Um, and we're going to probably start really uh, with that first sentence of the first verse, which is, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. And you can ask a question, which is, who is the person who is talking? Who is the person who is uh, the angel of the Lord who's about to deliver the sermon? Because getting that right determines a lot about the character um, of the message that's going to be delivered. So there's a bunch of ways we could try to answer this question. What I would like to do, though, is I would like to turn to other texts in scripture that would help us point to who this character might be. So to find the first reference of the angel of the Lord, you're going to have to turn with me to Genesis 16. So Genesis 16 uh, is the first reference we get in all of scripture to this character known as the angel of the Lord. And you'll see that in Genesis 16, verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord uh, continues with this blessing over her and Ishmael. But what's interesting uh, to note about this text is this is the first time we see this character referenced. And you'll notice uh, a few things. One is the character is referenced as the angel of the Lord. Same thing we see in Judges chapter 2. Uh, but also the character makes a specific eye reference to growing the nation. So you'll see that uh, in verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Now that's the same promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 15 using that same language of I. He says, I will multiply your offspring greater than the sands of the seashore. And here the angel of the Lord is saying this to Sarah, or sorry, to Hagar as she's fleeing Sarah. So that's an interesting first encounter, right? So, angel of the Lord, reference here for the first time. The next reference is also an appearance to Hagar in Genesis 21. So, if you'll flip there with me, we'll try to kind of move through these in short order. So, Genesis uh, 21, verse 17 this time. 
And this uh, is interesting because it's also again to Sarah and Hagar, or to, to Hagar after she's fleeing Sarah and Abram, now this second time. And the angel of the Lord shows up again in verse 17. It says, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Verse 18, Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. So there you have the angel of the Lord again, referencing that God has heard the, this boy, but I will make this boy into a great nation. So it's an interesting second occurrence. Both of the first two times we meet this character is not the promised line. It's not Abraham, it's not Isaac, it's Sarah and Hagar and that kind of side story that you see with Hagar and Ishmael. So the next encounter that you wanna see uh, is to Jacob, the appearance, which is in Genesis 31. So just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, You see in Genesis chapter 31 and verse 13. So this is Jacob after he flees from Laban. Uh, and we're covering a lot of Old Testament history right now. But so Jacob flees from Laban. Uh, Laban was kind of being unfair to him. And so Jacob leaves with his wives. Uh, and during this flight, um, he, he has God show up and talk to him. Uh, and it says in verse, uh, in this case, verse 12, uh, the angel of the Lord, or sorry, verse 11, you see it's the angel of the Lord, but in verse 12, it says, and he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock that are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go to this land and return to the land of your kindred. So you have, you have the angel of the Lord talking, and the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of Bethel. Now to understand what that reference is, we don't, we're not going to turn there, but in Genesis 28, Jacob has a vision. It's called Jacob's Ladder. And in this vision, he sees angels ascending and descending on like a staircase. And at the pinnacle of that staircase, there's a character who is referred to as Yahweh. And the character is Yahweh receiving praise and worship from the angels. And this location is known as Bethel. And this angel of the Lord shows up and says in here in Genesis 31, I am the God that you saw at Bethel. So the angel of the Lord character is now personally identifying himself with Yahweh. But he still references Yahweh in the third person as well in many of these encounters, right? So the next one uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, you will see this in Genesis 48 is the next time. And this is when uh, you see a blessing given to the offspring. Uh, Genesis, I say 48, right? Okay, good. I heard 28 in my head, so. <laughs> Genesis 48, uh, and we'll be in verse 16 of this time. So you have... Uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph's children, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim being blessed. And so I'll, start, I'll start reading this at the end of verse 15. It says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And in the name of my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So you have the angel of the Lord being referenced, not primarily, you have God being referenced, but in verse 16, you see the, it switches out God with the angel who has redeemed. So God is the one who blesses, but the angel is the one who redeems. So you have kind of this duality of reference going on. And then there's uh, one final place we'll turn before one that'll reference back to where we go for our text. Um, sorry, two more references, Exodus three. So it's a little few chapters over. Exodus 3, the famous uh, burning bush encounter with Moses. And this will be Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. 
So the angel of the Lord uh, appears to Moses out of a flame of fire. So it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why, why the bush is not burned. Then the Lord saw that he turned and set aside to see, and God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take off the sandals from your feet for the place in which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, in the bottom half of that text, you see it's God, it's God, it's God. But remember in verse 2, this character is introduced to us as the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire. So the angel of the Lord shows up, and when Moses goes over, the angel of the Lord says, I am God, the same God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here you have the angel of the Lord character identifying himself there. And then the last cross-reference before we get back into Judges is Exodus 23. And this one will take us straight back into the book of Judges, uh, where we find ourselves tonight. So Exodus 23, and this will be in verse 23 as well of that chapter. And this is going to be a longer uh, read, and the reason is because this is actually the explicit reference that the angel makes when he shows up to the people in the book of Judges. So he's quoting this encounter that we're about to read in Exodus 23. Exodus 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jezebites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take your sickness from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and come, and I will make all of your, or, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. So this is the specific blessing that God has as the people are going to, you know, be promised this promised land. They're being told by Moses or by God through Moses to go get this place. And the specific reference in the, the opening verse of this is verse 23. Um, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites, you shall not bow down to their gods. So the angel of the Lord is the one who goes before them. And yet in scripture and judges, you see it is God who says he's going to go before the people. And then we saw that really in chapter one. Of Judges. God's the one who says he goes before Judah to give them the land. So then let's turn then back to Judges chapter 2 and that'll land us right back where we are tonight and you'll see that same message referenced by this character. So the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. There's another I reference. I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Notice all the first person references that you get there in the text. He says, I, I said, I will never break. It's my covenant. I was the one who brought you out. But remember, this is the angel of the Lord talking and using that first person personification. So in Judges chapter 2, here in this section, we can ask a pretty fair question, which is, who is the angel of the Lord? And as Trinitarian Christians, you can study this on your own. I've given you most of those good cross-references to look at. But as Trinitarian Christians, it's actually really easy for us to understand. This is the second person of the Trinity being referenced. And that doesn't mean every time we see the angel of the Lord in scripture, 
that it is the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes people are, are, it's a reference to an angel of the Lord. And what you need to know about Hebrew and about Greek in the New Testament is a lot of times the articles that we use in English are supplied. So the and an are not good ways for us to determine if it's Jesus or just an angel or whatever. So those articles are assumed by translators. And depending on which translation, it'll be an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. So you have to look at the context. But in the context, the ones that we've just looked at, the, the angel, when it makes specific reference to itself, referencing God in the third person, and then referencing God as itself. We can assume as Trinitarian Christians, that's probably the second person of the Trinity speaking, because nowhere else in scripture do you get an angel that attempts to impersonate God. Nowhere else do you see a messenger speaking and saying, I, 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 in the same way. Now you might have prophets who in a long oracle will say things like that, but they will always introduce that oracle with thus says the Lord, and then they'll kind of go on their spiel. But in this case, the angel of the Lord in very short order says God, me, and kind of uses them in a muddy, interchangeable way. But as Trinitarian Christians, we would say, that's not a problem for us. We believe in a triune God who's difficult to understand. And these Old Testament texts keep this in tension. And this isn't the last time we're gonna see this character in Judges. You'll see him in Judges 6 and in Judges 13. So I'm just introducing him to you now. And we'll, as, you, as we study the text, we'll see him a few more times. So that's who this person is that's delivering the sermon. And the reason I, I belabor that point is because what this shows us is as the people of Israel continue to rebel, God is so gracious to them that he doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send an angel. He sends the second person of the Trinity to come to preach to them to repent and turn away from what they're doing. So he, this shows the heart of God, that he is personally involved in the success of Israel and he is personally going to try to see to it that they hear his message, they understand him clearly, and they go and repent, right? You can think about that New Testament parable where Jesus says, the, the servants go, and the, so there's an owner of the vineyard, he owns the vineyard, he lends it out to tenants, he sends some servants to say he's coming back, they beat up the servants, they send them away, and then he sends his son to the vineyard for them to respond and repent, thinking, surely this is my heir, they will respect him. And you, of course, know how that parable goes, they, they kill the son, thinking that it will give them something. But here you see second person of Trinity going to try to personally intervene in Israel's disaster. So that's the preacher who we're introduced to. And then the second thing you'll see is the sermon that he preaches. This is actually really straightforward, very easy to understand. The sermon that he preaches uh, is, you'll see it really in verse two. He, he cited all his sources, what he's done, what he's done for the people of Israel. And then he says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this then that you have done? So the, the sermon's pretty straightforward, right? The accusation, which we've kind of seen and we've been studying it for the last few weeks, is Israel is guilty of what this person's saying. Israel is guilty of abandoning the covenant, making treaties with these other people, trying to appease them, and not driving out the other nations. So they've been disobedient to the voice of God. And not only have they uh, been disobedient, but you'll see then in verse 3, what he says is, Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and God shall be a snare to you. So if you want a quick paraphrase of what all he's saying there is, if you want this sin so badly, if you want to violate my covenant so badly, go ahead and have it and have it in full measure. Not only will these people be around, but I'll make sure they stay around. Not only can you live with them, I'm going to make sure they intermarry with your daughters and your people. Not only can they stay, but also their worship is going to impact your whole way of life for basically the rest of your existence in the promised land. So what you see is God giving the people over to their sin. They want the sin so badly, he's going to say, you know what? A just punishment would be to give them exactly what they want. 
And in a real in a real sense, the punishment is what they were wanting, which is to keep these people around. So he gives them exactly what they were asking for. Paul identifies this in Romans 1 as the, the punishment of God is God giving people over to the lust of their heart. He gives them over to the sins that they pursue. And this is this is true. You can you can observe this all over the place. If someone struggles with greed and they don't relent and God tries to restrain them, restrain them, he gives them exactly what they want. They run to the end of that rabbit trail, realize greed doesn't fulfill, and now they commit suicide because their life is meaningless. You can see the same thing with lust, where people, they, they want to sleep with whoever they want to, they're going to ruin their marriage, they're going to ruin their job, they're going to ruin their reputation, and they're just going to keep running after that as long as it takes, right? You can see that same pattern observed even in today's culture. So you see the, the preacher, then you see the sermon that he preaches, and then finally you're going to see the response of the people. And this is really interesting stuff. Because in verse 4 you see, as the angel of the Lord speaks these words, the people lift up their voices and they weep. So this sermon brings them to tears in like a, a, an outward response of, of repentance, right? And they call the name of the place Bokim. And if you look, I don't know if you guys have that cross-reference down in your Bibles, but Bokim is the Jewish word for weepers. So they weep, they rename the location that this sermon was preached at, weepers, in, like, in keeping with their response. They're like really making a show out of this thing. And then they go and sacrifice there to the Lord. So they're, they're doing the full gambit of, you know, the outward actions of what you would expect of repentance, right? So they, they kind of do this whole outward demonstration. Um, but what you don't notice in this text is there's no reference to them going and putting away the idols that have brought them to this place. In fact, if you were to continue to read in chapter 2, as, you, as the book of Judges is kind of designed to be read, if you were to keep reading, you will notice they actually continue to pursue these idols. So they have this like day of mourning, day of repentance, they sacrifice, they're going to rename this place. But they're not actually going to put away the sin that has gotten them to this location. So the question is, why then are they weeping? What's this big show about? Well, you can kind of sum it up in, in a few ways, but uh, one of the ways you can think about it is they might think that what the angel of the Lord requires of them is for them to make a demonstration of guilt, that they acknowledge what they did, but that he's not going to require anything further. So they think that to appease God, what we need to do is we need to continually keep his commandments kind of like from now going forward, but what we're not going to do is try to undo the things that we did to get us here. We're not going to try to go back and repent of what we've done and turn away and relent from those things. We're going to continue on from this point forward and try to just do better from this point forward, right? So they're not actually re re going back and destroying the idols. They're just going to kind of try to do better from here on out. They're going to sacrifice, they're going to weep, but they're not actually going to go back and try to eviscerate the sin that has got them to this place. The other thing that you can probably notice about this um, is, is they might be weeping, not because of what the sin that they've committed, but because of the judgment that is levied against them. So remember, the angel has a two-part sermon. The first sermon is, you're guilty of this. The second part of the sermon is, therefore, this is your punishment. And the therefore, this is your punishment part of the sermon, if you're guilty of this sin or not, if you feel that conviction, you're going to be sad about the second half of that sermon because it's, it's kind of bad news that they're not going to be able to continue to drive these people out because maybe they do want the land. Maybe they just wanted it on their own terms. And God is telling them they're not going to be able to have it anymore. In fact, these people are going to be a thorn in their sides for all generations. And so they might be weeping not about the sin that they've committed against God. They might be weeping about the punishment that this sin is going to produce in their life. And that might be evidence of the fact that they don't actually go back and try to do away with the sin. Um, a good, uh, Matthew Henry, when he comments on this, he says um, that this weeping, this is not enough. They wept, but they did not, we do not find that they reformed. They went home and they did not destroy the remains of the idolatry or the idolaters that lived among them. So you see there's a difference between outward weeping and like an authentic, true repentance. And then I suppose we can, we can probably close with this idea of true repentance. What is 
an authentic demonstration of repentance. I just really want to put this on the ground for us, like in today's language, right? There's a difference between feeling guilty about sin and feeling bad about the kinds of effects that sin has on your life and repenting and hating the sin for what it is. There's a, st- there's a stark difference between those things. And I think in the church, uh, depending on you know, how often you think you sin or what your sin particularly is, you might, be, you might feel sorry for the kinds of effects sin has in your life, but not sorry for the sin itself. That makes sense? You might feel guilty for the kinds of consequences that sin has, how other people in the church might view you, how you feel guilty about those things. But if you don't actually levy a war against that sin, to, to repent is not just to feel sorry for sin or feel guilty about sin. To repent is to go to that sin and put it to death. Not to try to do away with the consequences of sin, but to deal with the sin itself. I think Max was talking last week and he said, it's the thing that like, your, your heart jumps at and like, longs for. That's the thing that is a good indicator of where your desires lie. And someone who hates their sin will recognize where their heart jumps, realize it's not towards God, and say, I need to deal with my heart. And someone who just wants to do the outward demonstration would say, I'm cool at the heart level thing, as long as this doesn't you know, blow up and other people start to notice where this is leading me. That this doesn't affect my life and my, my, you know, my ministry, my job, my relationships. I'm going to kind of keep this in secret. So what you see from these people is there's no fruit of their repentance. There's no reformation among the people. They don't turn away from their sin. They don't leave it behind. They actually, as you, you continue to read, they actually continue to pursue this sin. They actually continue to pursue this sin until all the old faithful people are dead. And now there's a new generation. And that new generation is, is referred to as not knowing God because they pursued their sin to such an extent that even when the second person of the Trinity comes down to preach a message to them, best preacher you could ever ask for, it's not enough. It's not enough to drive repentance in their hearts, right? Uh, usually I try to close with you know, some, some discussion questions and I have those if we wanna get to those, but I think it's probably most fitting for us to close in prayer right now and then we can open it up the discussion from there, so. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your word uh, to us uh, in Judges. Lord, you speak profoundly and uh, in a very modern, real sense through texts that are thousands of years old. Um, this text is real, uh, it is alive, and it is exactly what we need to hear today. We thank you for your providence and your foresight um, in writing this uh, message, writing this record. Um, and as you say in your scripture, all the things that were written in the former days are written for our instruction. And Lord, I pray that we would be well instructed by these texts and we would learn from them. Uh, we would hunger and thirst to, to squeeze out from them what we can uh, to profit us for learning about you, learning about ourselves, and learning about the cross. Um, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.